0: Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the collective action approach needed to remove billions of tonnes of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Today's episode is sponsored by Carbon Future. Carbon Future is an end-to-end platform for companies who want to participate in removing carbon from the atmosphere. Unlike conventional marketplaces. Carbon Futures monitoring, reporting, and verification platform solves carbon credit uncertainty for buyers like Microsoft and Swiss Re, while Carbon Future support helps scale the world's most promising carbon removal ventures for real climate impact. You can learn more at carbonfuture.earth. Since its founding in 2015, Carbon 180 has played a central role in building the dynamic carbon removal or CDR ecosystem that exists today. They focus exclusively on CDR collaborating closely with policymakers and entrepreneurs to design the policies needed to get CDR to gigaton scale. Carbon 180's tireless work is paying off in a big way, with key carbon removal provisions in the recently passed bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act. We're now entering a new phase of growth in CDR, and Carbon 180 believes that the success of that growth depends largely on trust. They think that measurement reporting and verification can be designed to enhance accountability beyond just serving as a means for carbon accounting and address the needs of a wider group of stakeholders. So ahead of the curve, as always, Carbon180 has developed a tool to help us reframe our thinking on MRV. Today, they announced their high accountability MRV matrix, a principles first approach to MRV that will help drive innovation and enhance confidence in CDR among the next wave of buyers. My guest today, Peter Miner from Carbon180, will talk us through this tool and what it means for the CDR industry as it enters a new stage of growth. He also previews how MRV could one day be used to build trust with communities at the front lines of CDR deployment and help unlock the public sector dollars we're going to need to scale up this critical climate solution. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to this podcast at carboncurve.substack.com or through your favorite podcast app. I'm taking a two-week pause on releasing new episodes after this one, but if you'd like to get in touch in the meantime, shoot me an email at naeem at carboncurve.co. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone, my guest today is Peter Miner, Director of Science and Innovation at Carbon 180. Carbon 180 is a new breed of climate NGO on a mission to reverse two centuries of carbon emissions. Working closely with U.S. policymakers, entrepreneurs, and peer organizations, Carbon 180 designs policies that will bring necessary carbon removal solutions to gigaton scale. Carbon 180 is the only team in the U.S. exclusively dedicated to bringing together the people, resources, and vision to build a carbon-removing world. Peter uses his knowledge of the latest science, along with his relationships within the innovation community, to help the Carbon 180 team craft policy recommendations that catalyze the carbon removal industry. Before joining the fight against climate change, he built a startup accelerator and venture fund focused on frontier innovation. He is a staunch believer that technology can help solve humanity's greatest challenges. Peter is based in the San Francisco Bay Area and is a friend to all who are working in climate. Peter is a good friend of mine and one of the first close contacts I made as I began exploring the world of carbon removal back in 2019. Since I've known Peter, he's always been an amazing soundboard and inspires me to look at the challenge or opportunity in this field in an entirely new light and pushes the boundaries for what I think is possible in this incredibly dynamic space, which is why I'm really excited to have him on the show today. But all of that gushing aside, Peter, I'm also excited to have you on the show because of a new effort you're launching which is Carbon 180's Principles of High-Quality Measurement Monitoring, Reporting, and Verification, or MRV, which I'm really excited to get into with you.
1: Yeah, same. Thanks so much for having me on this podcast. And I, I want to have been so impressed by everything you've created. And um, also just want to name that you've been someone who's helped us define some of our thinking around MRV. And so very excited to dig into it with you now and, and talk more about it. That's great.
0: So before we get into the MRV principles that Carbon 180 has crafted, with the extensive input from the carbon removal community. Tell me a little bit more about your role. What do you work on as director of science and innovation? And why is that important to a policy think tank like Carbon
1: 180? Absolutely. I think that is one of the novel aspects of Carbon 180 that we do dig so deeply into both science and innovation. And for us, I think it really just comes back to our mission. And so, as you mentioned before, we see ourselves as a new breed of climate NGO that's trying to reverse two centuries of carbon Urban emissions and we do this by building policy recommendations that are designed to create a gigaton scale industry as quickly as possible and so the reason I'm here is that I want to make sure that those recommendations that we are putting out and sharing are being fo- informed by the most up-to-date science um, and information from on the ground from folks who are actually building and deploying these necessary technologies and so that means talking to scientists uh, working with entrepreneurs understanding how project developers, are doing their job and, and understanding the larger innovation ecosystem. And so we think that the best types of policies don't just address the problems at hand. but are actually trying to create a pathway and really trying to think like where the future should go. Where should we be trying to get to? And so from the work that we've already done on things like soil carbon moonshots, our, our hubs white paper, and now this mo- most recent work on MRV, we're really trying to build a future that we think needs to exist within carbon removal policy. That's really great. So you're trying to
0: stay ahead of the curve on carbon removal policy so that uh, the policy landscape is responsive to changes that are happening uh, on the ground through your interaction with scientists and entrepreneurs, as opposed to being a few years behind, which can often be the case when you're when you're shaping policy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Not just responsive, but hopefully predictive. And so an example of this could be 45Q, which to date has really been built around one technology, direct air capture. Just because I think lawmakers struggled to have an understanding of what the larger landscape of CDR could look like because the field was so early. And so building 45Q into something that could be more tech agnostic, thinking, not trying to define what the future of the field should look like, but being inclusive of it, is an example of how a policy could be developed in a way that is thinking about the future. And so there's lots of examples of this across the carbon removal field, but our job is to try to remove roadblocks before they happen so that we can make as much progress as possible because we honestly just don't have a lot of the time. Yeah, that's really great. And it
0: seems like the way that you all approach the measurement uh, monitoring, reporting and verification work was with that ethos in mind around not getting too specific around any one technology, but thinking more broadly about, you know, the where the carbon removal landscape can go in many different directions. And so, I'd love to hear more about the measurement, monitoring, reporting, and verification principles that you've all worked on in the context of carbon removal. But before we get into that, what about the existing approaches to MRV aren't working right now? And
1: why not? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think when we, a lot of us in this field talk about the need for high quality carbon removal. And when we say that, what we're almost always referring to are a couple of key features. So, High durability is one, clear net negativity, maximizing impact on actually reducing harms of of climate change, because that's why we're doing this. And then uh, obviously minimizing safety and ecosystem impacts. And so across all of these, MRV is the tool that we use to actually measure results and and maximize those outcomes. Like that is the thing that leads us to what we're calling high quality carbon removal. So in the simplest terms, well-designed MRV tells us that the work was done effectively and safely, and then provides the receipts. So what's really important for us from a policy perspective, and I think just generally about carbon removal in general, is that we're still in the very early days of developing MRV protocols and technologies. Folks have been working on this for just a couple of years, really. And so benchmarking on what's possible today really isn't that instructive because we haven't gotten that far. So our goal should really be to chart a path to what MRV Needs to be to support a gigaton scale carbon remo- removal industry, and then start investing strategically to get it there as quickly as possible. Thinking about what this policy landscape should be, how can government invent and, and invest? How do we build the right test beds and, and protocols? And so that's the key, it from our perspective on how to succeed in MRV. And really, if we get it right, like if we can do this really well, then that is what is the surest guarantee we have towards building the type of carbon removal industry that we would all be proud of, and that will have as much impact as possible.
0: Right, and in conversations that we've had about this, you think setting the bar too low for MRV at this early stage that that you're talking about could have disastrous consequences down the line, right? Potentially leading to things like widespread fraud or even the potential kind of collapse of the CDR industry.
1: Why do you think that is? Let me start with a little bit of some context that I think has been instructive for for us. So the carbon removal industry as a whole is obsessed with scale. I think I've made a couple of references to that myself already in this podcast. And the emphasis on scalability is actually really well-founded. Carbon removal is an essential tool for meeting the Paris Agreement goals that we've all set across the globe and to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. We just really need this and we need this at a certain level of capacity, which is gonna be extremely hard to get to. So scalability is incredibly important, but scalability is only part of what's, what's required to make these promises a reality. The other half is one that I think we don't talk nearly enough about, and that's trust. We're still living in a world that predominantly either doesn't understand what carbon removal even is, or is actually quite distrustful of its intentions and what impacts it can actually have. So the examples of this, we're seeing this in the recent order in New Orleans that prevents any kind of carbon capture from being deployed into the city. And they bucketed technologies like DAC and BEX into that, even if it's maybe not the best uh, definition or that wasn't even in their intentions. It happened. So that is one place where we are no longer able to deploy technologies, even though we need these absolutely in every way. Another example of this is that community injustice justice groups largely see carbon removal as designed to extend the use of fossil fuels and justify additional emissions. And so if we're really being honest with ourselves about this, how can we blame them, right? I mean, there've been so many different and previous approaches at trying to make negative emissions of some kind or offsets or carbon credits a reality, and they have been largely ineffective. The, The actual measurable climate impacts from those approaches are pretty hard to see. And so I think also on top of that, some of them have been downright fraud. And so this has been well-documented. Folks know that this is the case. And so how do we expect for them to believe that carbon removal is going to actually be different unless we show it to them? And so I think it's true that it sort of, it would be easier for the industry just to ignore the importance of trust. And it actually might be better in the short-term from a scale perspective. You actually might be able to get more done, but trust is the thing that is going to create a bridge to those communities where we actually need to deploy technologies and get them on board with with accepting these. We need to do thousands and probably tens of thousands of new projects and deployments for carbon removal to be effective. And these are gonna happen happen in folks' proverbial backyard. And so we need them on board for that to happen or we're gonna see many more New Orleans type situations. On top of that, trust is what's gonna build taxpayer confidence to invest the additional billions of dollars that we're inevitably going to need to actually make this industry work. And so, yeah, focusing purely on the scalability, doing things like weakening requirements on MRB, deploying CDR projects that still have lots of remaining uncertainty, doing those things could largely lead to more tons delivered in the short term. But if it turns out later that models had overestimated the amount of impact that those actually had, um, if the removals are unexpectedly reversed, which happens all the time, and generally, if the field just doesn't deliver on the promises that are being made, then that loss of trust is going to make it incredibly difficult for lawmakers to continue with the support that we've seen over the last couple of years. And so if our perspective is supposed to be about optimizing for gigaton scale, and I would argue that that is the right goal, that just can't happen without massive government and community support. And so trust needs to be an integral part of any solution that we're deploying. So in our thinking, the answer to this is expanding the purpose of why we do MRV in carbon removal in the first place. So not just about carbon accounting, but really expanding that into including accountability overall. So accountability to all your stakeholders, including the buyers of credits, projects, developers, governments, regulators, but also communities and, and, and ecosystems themselves. So at Carbon 180, we've started calling this high accountability MRV. And we think it's the link between trusted scale. This this is how you build the optimal path towards towards gigaton scale. And so high accountability high accountability MRV includes um recommendations on how you should be thinking about MRV and building it in a way that is high, both highly robust and accounts for the larger societal expectations around carbon removal. So we've covered a lot of ground
0: there, Peter. I mean, it sounds like when you're thinking about MRV, you're going beyond the accountability of a carbon removal project developer to a potential carbon credit buyer, but you're looking pretty broadly at the whole landscape of stakeholders who have an important stake in how well a project actually develops. And it sounds like you're banking that MRV is a key element to building trust around carbon removal to get to gigas scale, right? Like if you're playing the long game for carbon removal scale, then you really care about building trust. And you think that having an accountability focused MRV framework that, that addresses the interests of more than just carbon credit buyers, but the entire universe of potential stakeholders, that that can be critically important to build up the trust yeah. that's needed. And then, and then from there, we can actually get to getting the, I guess, front end acceptance from
1: communities that are going to be essential to scaling up this technology. Do I have all of that right? That's exactly right. So the the number of stakeholders involved in carbon removal projects and deployments are not just the ones that we historically have considered. So folks like credit buyers and financiers uh, and regulators, but communities are a key part of that. And so we believe that trust across the board is one of the most important ways that we will eventually be able to achieve scale. And so if we are indeed thinking about the future and trying to Project the path to how we get there as fast as possible. It's important that we actually build those principles and those ideas and those beliefs into the actions that we're taking as an industry. And so MRV really is at, at the center of all that. It is the nucleus. And so if we can get MRV right, if we can make sure that it not is only an effective way of measuring how much climate impact we're having, how much you know integrity exists within the tons that are being promised and delivered, but also considers how we describe what is happening to all the stakeholders that includes, which includes communities, that's how we win. I mean, one thing I like to say is that CO2 is this invisible, inert, highly diffused gas in the atmosphere. And in most cases, when carbon removable projects are deployed, the folks who are are buying it are, are, are probably not going to come even within hundreds of miles of, of where that work is being done. And if we're doing it all right, we never see that CO2 again. And so it can be really hard to track outcomes, which I think one can lead to a ton of fraud and, and and bad acting. But more importantly, the folks who are going to be see this the most, the ones who are most impacted are those community members. And so making sure that they're part of the process, they feel like they're being heard, and that when we're promising that we're doing this deployment and any impacts that they do uh, experience are being done for the better of, of climate and, and it's solving this big problem, we better deliver on those promises and not doing that means that they're less likely to want to work with these folks ever again. And so this is the way for us to make sure that we build a system that is both effective but also it will be here for the for the long term. So I
0: think I'm mostly on board with the the approach that you're you're taking here. But I want to play devil's advocate on a couple things. So I'm going to try to push back on on a few areas where you might you might see folks have a different point of view. One of them could be, you know, Is this level of inclusiveness, right? Taking kind of the views of many different stakeholders into account, set a bar for MRV that's really so high that you end up stifling innovation. I mean, most carbon removal companies are still in the lab. So isn't it kind of
1: early to start setting rigorous MRV standards now? It's a really good question and actually a really important one, because I'll just say right off the bat that it is very important that we do not stifle innovation. And I mean, like you said we're at the very early stages of developing and and deploying technologies that we're going to need. It's very likely that the technologies that are going to get us to gigaton scale may not even exist today or or not quite uh, at their optimal form. And so there's so much work to be done and we need to make sure we don't do that. But actually, I would argue that this is a common misconception that uh, setting a high bar for industry is in many cases, not anti-innovation. And you can see this by looking at history where many of the most impactful climate winds demonstrate the opposite effect. And so let me take one uh, and tell you a quick story about it. So in the 1960s, emissions from cars were a huge, huge problem. I'm sure many, you and many of, of listeners have seen images of what LA looked like during those times. They were It was absolutely blanketed by smog. And so the first Earth Day happened on April 22nd, 1970. And it was partially a response to the fact that air and water pollution were ranked as some of the highest uh, elevated issues from, from uh, citizens and from voters. Like it was the thing that they wanted to address the most. And so as a result, result of that, the U.S. passed the Clean Air Act, which required all vehicles to cut their emissions by 75% in five years. And what was amazing about that was that this was a mandate that no one knew how they would actually solve. The technology did not exist. From the government's perspective, this is a way for them to force the auto industry to invent its way out of this problem of smog. And if you look back at a uh, discussion at the time, the auto industry was furious about this. They were suggesting, there, there was a lot of suggestion, this was going to kill the car industry and, wait for it, stifle new innovation. But as we all know, this is not what actually came to pass. The actual result was the commercialization of of the catalytic converter, which is something that occurs on every internal combustion car today. Um, And if you look at what actually happened from that invention and and the deployment of that invention in a relatively short period of time, emissions from hydrocarbons and uh, NOx, nitrous oxides, which were sort of the two main pollutants that contributed to the smog, they went from 14 grams per mile in 1965, if you averaged across all the different models of cars, to just three grams per mile by 1975, the deadline. So they actually, auto manufacturers actually beat the requirements. and was even more amazing. Like the part that I think really gets me the most excited is if you look even beyond that, by 1981, the automotive industry had introduced several new technologies, including advanced fuel injection, uh, more advanced catalyst converters, oxygen sensors, early computers to optimize the, the function of those engines. They dropped The emissions by an additional 50% to 1.5 grams per mile. So they went beyond the regulatory requirement and continued to innovate. And so I think the key part to take away from this is that the purpose of setting a high bar is not to cycle innovation, but to direct innovation and give it specific purpose. So in the case of MRV, optimizing for high accountability is just making the case that trust really matters. And that if we're actually going to remove tons, gigatons of CO2, the reason why is not to just have a ledger where we're counting the number of tons that come off, but it's to go back to this idea of reducing harm, that we're trying to prevent the worst effects that could possibly happen. And so if you think about a graph and on one x-axis is scalability and the y-axis is something like integrity. So like how well it actually works. What we're trying to optimize here is not actually the just total number of tons, because in a lot of cases right now, we're not actually sure for every ton that we think we're removing, we're not actually sure how effective it is. It may be significantly less than that one ton. Some In some cases, less than 10%. And so what we really should be optimizing over is the area under that curve, how many we're removing with how effective and and, and how much integrity that removal each has. And so that's the key part that matters is how can we focus industry in trying to do a lot better and take this concept of MRV and try to maximize it as much as possible, because that's what leads to trust. That is what leads to the area under the curve. And so I would argue that there probably is very good reason why we should be having some sort of you know, early innovation carve-outs where new technologies can do testing and can do deployments without having um, onerous MRV requirements. But if you think about what this needs to look like to get to ton scale, like when this is a really mature, large scale industry, if we don't have incredibly robust MRV, the room for pushback, the room for loss of trust, the room for fraud is going to be absolutely massive. And so that's the point of the work that we're trying to advocate for is that by thinking about the future, we need to be pushing on the boundaries today and clearly describing that the expectations are going to be very high. And so let's start trying to meet those expectations today.
0: Yeah, that's really great. And the expectations that you all set are really bound in principles as, a spe- as opposed to being extremely prescriptive. Tell us more about the principles-based approach to MRV that Carbon 180 is taking on here. Why was it important to start with principles? And what problem is this trying to solve? And what problem is it not trying to solve?
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So, I mean, MRV, we say it as is one term, right? It's measurement, monitoring, reporting, and verification. But really the actual practices and, and what we're trying to accomplish with MRV is highly diverse. And it changes quite a bit with each different carbon removal methods because you know, the chemistry and physics and, and biology of, of how those removal methods work are quite different. And so MRV will not be one thing. And so our goal was not to try to, to describe or prescribe how to specifically design MRV protocols themselves, that's going to be actually much harder work that the industry needs to now take on and, and, and take forward. So what we were trying to do is think about how can we define what matters in terms of, of the principles and the features of MRV across CDR methods in a way that makes it comparable. Like We don't think that the actual MRV itself can be unified across CDR. It is just too different. But the belief structures around what good MRV and, and high accountability MRV looks like can be normalized. And so that's what we were trying to do is how can we describe what MRV in principle should be tried to accomplish? And what are those key features to help us have a North star to point to and and realize where there are gaps? Where should we be investing new R&D dollars? Where do we need to be making a ton more progress? And so I think the idea was, can we create a framework that is clarifying what the best case Scenario can look like from first principles. And then what does a lower accountability perspective look like? Like what what does it look like if we're not doing what is necessary to really succeed? And by clarifying that with specific examples and 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 demonstrating potential like middle cases, we wanted to paint this picture for folks to see what the goal should be and what we should all be striving for. I think the part that you said that's really important is what are we not trying to solve here? What are we not trying to actually do? And I would say the big thing is that this is not meant to be a guideline for pointing at MRV protocol design today and say, oh, these are not good. Like These are a bad way to do things. That I think is completely counterintuitive today because I think there is a lot of capability and technologies that we need to develop in order to do what we're calling high accountability MRV that doesn't even exist today. It's likely not even possible. But what I really want to impress on folks is that Just because it's not possible today does not mean it's going to not be possible in the future. So, to give you a quick example of that, maybe even 12 months, maybe it's like more like 18 months, but 18 months ago, one of the big questions in enhanced rock weathering was how do we actually account for the rate of weathering, which is directly proportional to how much CO2 is being removed? It was mostly an unsolved problem because so much of it depends on the conditions, the acidity of the soil, how much rain is coming down. And so If you wanted to do a really robust job of actually trying to account for removals, you needed to understand how weathering was occurring. And so that was largely unsolved. It was sort of one of the reasons why folks would argue that enhanced rock weathering was sort of struggling to become what we would call a high-quality CDR method. Um, But just a few months ago, I think less than 12 months ago, we had two different companies, uh, Lithos and Ion launch who have developed really clever MRB practices that really directly solve that problem. Like there are other issues that we need to be solving across enhanced rock weathering, but like this is maybe not entirely a solved problem, but we're most of the way there around trying to track those weathering rates. And so in such a short period of time, something went from pretty much unknown to we have a great first steps in how we can build technology and practices to, to address that directly. And so I just think that is possible across every pathway in CDR. There's so many ways that we can just do a ton better. And so our principles are designed to really point to that fact and, and show people what we think we eventually need to get to or try to strive to get to. And um, I think like our core audience for this, the way that we're sort of targeting this work is specifically at carbon removal procurers have so many level levers available to them. To really push the field forward. You know, the AMCs that were spun up like Frontier and, and First Movers Coalition, and I think they've really d- demonstrated that a lot of their early purchasing could drive the field towards a lot of qualities that matter. We think that they can do the same thing with high accountability MRV.
0: Yeah, what's really exciting about the MRV first principles approach and getting that right early on is that, at least the way that you kind of described the the issue with enhanced rock weathering was that it can actually bring online carbon removal pathways that might otherwise have been considered not high quality or not worth pursuing further. But by innovating around MRV and, and having, you know, entrepreneurs and scientists focus on the MRV side of things, it then makes more emerging pathways more viable. And can actually increase our shots on goal would you would you agree with that takeaway?
1: I think that's exactly right that I think it helps focus the field on what really matters and where we need to continue making progress and so there are just so many different ways that we can do CDR. and I truly believe the future is going to be effectively some combination of all of them. like we do need a lot of solutions to do well, but the MRV piece, I think could be one of the critical ways that we are pushing the envelope in terms of how we develop new technologies and in where we need to be focusing. That's the back to CO2 being that's invisible and a highly diffuse gas. Like a lot of times we are measuring impacts indirectly. And you see that in the way that MRVs is designed, where in many cases, wh- what is being um, the protocols themselves are practices that should be followed, which are at best heuristics for the outcomes. But so far, that is the best that we can do but embedded in that is always gonna be massive uncertainty. And in some cases there are ways that we can try to bound that uncertainty, estimated, discounted, that can work in some cases, but we also have numerous and countless examples in the past of how those approaches have failed. And so the answer is that we are not gonna have one solution of of how we deal with uncertainty and and indirect MRV that is going to work for for CDR. There'll be places where that is effective, but at the end of the day, we need to be pushing towards how much direct measurements we can create as, as possible. That The only certainty is to actually observe and measure those outcomes directly. And that's how we know it was effective. And so again, may not be possible for every method. There may be some situations where some amount of modeling, especially when ground truth with lots of data uh, of measurement, direct measurement data is going to be the right solution. Like there we don't want to say that the good MRV methods are the ones that are the best combination of all the highest accountability examples that we're providing in our tool. That is not the future. There are going to be lots of great kick and important cases where we as a society are going to decide that, hey, we're not going to do the most accountable thing here because there's some very clear uh, benefits in terms of cost or or complexity. I think that is actually okay, that we are going to have some Middle and maybe even some low accountability cases for MRV that are the right choices. But I think what's key here is that we need to acknowledge that those are not the best that is possible, and that we need to be open and public about those optimizations that we're making as a society, and then move forward. Right. Okay. So, talk us through the framework itself
0: and how it enables accountability, and you know what are the four main principles, and maybe you can give us an example of what high and low quality
1: looks like for each? Absolutely. So the four main principles that we, we've described are first, direct accounting of removals and impacts. So we think that high quality MRV protocols include direct measurement of removals whenever possible. They'll also incru- include direct measurement of health and ecosystem impacts associated with the project. And so the reason why we do carbon removal isn't just about... Re- moving carbon. There's a lot more to why we want to do this in the first place. And so we want to make sure that is built into how we think about MRB. The second principle is traceability over time. So after measurement of removals from the atmosphere happens, monitoring of stored carbon and ongoing health and ecosystem impacts is incredibly important and are needed to establish durability and safety. So even after a project ends, the need to measure potential impacts persists. The third principle is data transparency. That data reporting, basically how we provide information to stakeholders, is just as important as data collection, which is the measurement and monitoring part. So, data transparency and accessibility are necessary for actual real and equal accountability. And then, lastly, appropriate incentive structures. So, verification of removals just has to take place in a, a framework that has the right types of financial incentive structures that minimize fraud and maximizes public benefits. And so those are very high level, very abstract ideas. And so what we did is we then broke those down into more specific, discrete components of, of what they mean and how they relate to measurement, monitoring, reporting, and verification, and then tried to give examples of what we would describe as high accountability versions of that and the middle accountability and the low accountability. I want to recognize that it's a spectrum though. Like it's not that you would only be in one bucket or another. It's possible that you can have features of that uh, one piece in high accountability, and then some features in, in middle or low accountability. But we wanted this to be a way for folks to be able to look at an existing MRV protocol or, or try to imagine what they wanna design for protocols and try to map this so, to how this exists on this scale of accountability and what works really well now, what is possible, and what do we need to continue doing innovation around to do better. So to give just sort of a few examples of that, one thing that we call out is the need to monitor retraceability over, over time, understanding how frequently do you actually need to monitor carbon stocks to understand um, what, what is the right state of carbon. So a high quality example of that would be that the carbon fluxes out of storage or you can sample continuously. You can know exactly when CO2 is reversing or or is is leaving storage or could be discreetly if the carbon itself is functionally stable. So, you know, using just physics and first principle, that's not going to go anywhere. Mineralization is, is generally a good example of this. Um, and the data accounts for the time period between samples. And so using tracers and enhanced weathering is an example of this, where you might only sample for those tracers once a year or once a quarter. But because you're getting this accumulation of that tracer, it just very accurately demonstrates the amount of removals that it happens. So on the other side of this, a low-quality example of that is that the state of carbon removal is assumed through some low-fidelity model that isn't really supported by peer review and um, doesn't have a strong basis in, in science and it, or is not monitored after project completion. We see this a lot in, in lower-quality removals, and uh, I think just a great example of, of what we should not be doing. Uh, to give you one other quick definition is thinking about data sharing and data collection. Let me focus on uh, data sharing. So sharing is really important just because we need to make sure that all stakeholders understand what's happening with the project. So we think a high accountability version of this is that all the data related to project performance, storage reversals, safety, and ecosystem impacts are open. They're inspectable and are available immediately following independent third-party validation. So obviously it's important that data is validated before it's shared, but pretty much right after that, it should be open for, for pretty much anyone to look into and, and inspect. And so it's important that data is available for peer review and can be shared on an easily accessible platform. The other side of that is that, and this is true again of many projects today, that data on project performance in in a low accountability setting. So performance safety and ecosystem impacts are just not shared with experts or communities beyond what are the minimum regulatory requirements. And so there are regulatory requirements that folks need to, to follow, but. I think if we really want to set the tone for what the carbon removal industry should be, and right now, government is not largely involved in, in a lot of these processes, but me in the future, this is the time for us to be demonstrating what are best practices. This is the time for private market to tell the government what eventual procurement should look like. And so I think deploying and advocating for high accountability MRV practices is the best way for us to do that. And maybe just to touch on briefly
0: the verification piece and making sure the incentives are right. But, you know, it seems like there's, there's a real intentionality around this framework to make sure that
1: incentives are aligned. Can you build on that a little bit more? Absolutely. So incentives drive everything, right? Everyone's decisions, everyone's actions, incentives are just one of the key features that we need to optimize over when it comes to MRB because a company who is deploying carbon removal technologies is getting paid for their work, just cannot be the ones who are actually measuring or even designing protocols that are supposed to be the the, the thing that audits uh, their actions. And so making sure that we actually have an ecosystem of of folks who are not just building carbon removal technologies, which is what we've been focused on to date, but are building protocol MRV protocols and actually deploying them. Um, I think what's really exciting to me is we're starting to see companies with the explicit mission to do that I think creating that kind of independence is is incredibly important, especially in a world where you now have incentives in place like 45Q that will pay you $180 a ton for doing high quality carbon removal that is injected into geologic storage. And that sits right next to, oftentimes, other facilities doing point source capture where very similar CO2 is being injected into the same wells using very similar pipes, and you get paid a lot less for that work. And so, I think that sort of highlights an example where there are going to be lots of opportunities and incentives for folks to just miscount a little bit or send CO2 in the wrong direction to try to get the higher incentive. And in most cases, the folks who are the buyers of these credits for the communities that are, you know, are party to these projects, they don't have the tools to tell the difference for when it is done well, when it is not. And so that is the point of MRV, but that's also the point of why we need to make sure that the data that is collected around these projects from MRV is shared with all folks, and that when we do independent validation of protocol design, when MRB is actually being conducted, that that all be done by independent parties who have uh, are, are working in a system that is that makes them financially independent in terms of their actions from the company itself. I think this is important to get right early on as well, because I think it's
0: I think to the point that you're making. In order for government procurement to become a reality around carbon removal, these things need to be in place. And I guess that leads me to my next question. How does Carbon 180
1: hope to engage on MRV going forward with this framework in hand? For us, this is the first piece of a larger campaign into MRV. We just see this as such a critical part of how we build the kind of carbon removal industry that we want to create. Like This, this is one of the, the checkpoints for how we succeed in, in the mission that we establish all the way in the beginning of, of when Carbon 180 was was created in 2015. And so I, I think it, all, it starts here with trying to describe what we think are the principles of, of high accountability MRV. But we think this goes a lot of different directions. So first, I think there's so much more that we can do to really dig into the intersection of MRV and communities and thinking about how it could be used as a tool for justice. So I think MRV is not going to be the same as uh, in the case of the durability, like MRV is the thing that helps us understand whether it's working or not and how durable something is. It is not going to be the case in terms of justice. There's, there's a lot more that needs to go into creating a just carbon removal industry besides MRV. But it could be one of the ways that we collect the critical data that allows us to not just think about accountability, but responsibility. Like I, I think there, this is there's a direct connection between these two things that need to be explored more. I think there's also opportunity for us to think about how we can build better tools for communities to understand what MRV is and that when a company or project is coming to their backyards, they can ask the critical questions to understand what they're going to be party to, like how much information will they get? And so they can make requests that are important to them and, and they can make sure that the, the the features and the protections that are that they want are are going to exist. And so that's one direction I think that definitely could take. And so you should hopefully see more from that us uh, very soon. But I think on the other side, Eventually, like right now, all MRV work is happening in the scope of private and voluntary markets, just because that's who's ready for this, right? I mean, we now have these giants AMCs, Advanced Market Commitments, who have billions of dollars at play. And so that is material amounts of money now. We're not talking about small allocations. This is extremely real. And so we need to make sure that the work is being done well. And so private markets are taking the lead in developing a lot of these protocols. Sometimes it's companies themselves because there's no other option. Um, but eventually we are going to see a world where governments come into play. And that might mean MRB is something that falls within the guidelines of agencies like DOE and others. It might mean that we might see some regulation around this. And it might just see, or we might just see that government decides that it wants to put its resources behind specific types of MRV protocols and practices. And so we don't really know which direction it's going to go, but we know it is going to be incredibly important, um, especially around things like procurement. And so we're going to also be exploring how the idea of principles of MRV could potentially be a tool for how government can think about things like relative quality across carbon removal methods, how it can create incentives for improving MRV and, and getting to the higher accountability states, what that needs to look like. And one thing we're excited about is there's a lot of ground truth that is going to be required for most carbon removal methods, and government just has is I think by far the best group to be able to do that there's so many examples of how USDA has been gathering really critical data around soil carbon and soil health overall that is being used to inform um, the models that a lot of soil carbon companies are using I mean we saw this with GPS where this is data that was made open and we had this amazing emergence of an industry that would not function without this government entity that is purely providing data. And so we're also excited to think about how can government play some governance roles and and be an enabler by setting up systems and, and networks of sensors potentially that provide critical ground truth data. So yeah, I think exploring more about how government could be part of this, both in terms of making sure we get to the right outcomes, but also investing strategically to improve um, the relative... Uh, accountability in in terms of MRV methods. That's really great,
0: Peter. And I think this is such a high impact policy lever, technical lever for Carbon 180 to be using to improve the the carbon removal field. How can people learn more about this specific effort and and the work that Carbon 180 does more broadly?
1: Absolutely. So we have just released a blog post on the principles of high accountability MRV and Maybe I can, I'll send you the links to that. I don't know if there's a way for you to, to do that in the description, but the best ways to sort of track this work and, and, and the work will be coming after this is to sign up for our uh, newsletters. So we have one called the Carbon Coffee, which is just a great summary of one, obviously the, the important work that Carbon 180 is doing, but also just a highlight of what's happening across the fields. And so we'll, we'll be releasing all of our work there. But I say one important thing I want to highlight is that we very much see this as a starting point. And this is a rough draft of what we think high accountability MRB should look like. And so we are intentionally not writing this in proverbial stone. Like we see this as a living document and we would love to work with others on this. Like we would absolutely appreciate collaborators and expanding our thinking and taking this idea of principles and taking it a step further. And so we want this to be something that really should be part of the community. And is being led by the community overall because that's just how we guarantee the best outcomes and so like you'll be seeing a lot more from us but hopefully this can be something that others grab onto also and we can start co-creating together that's really great
0: and i'll make sure that all of these resources are in the show notes as well as anything that gets out to our listeners and, and hopefully there's opportunities that uh that they can identify to, to collaborate with you all on, on on building on this really great work Peter, thank you so much for your time.
1: I really appreciate it. Thanks, Naeem. This was so much fun. Really appreciate it.
0: And thanks again to today's sponsor, Carbon Future. Carbon Future is an end-to-end platform for companies who want to participate in removing carbon from the atmosphere. Unlike conventional marketplaces, Carbon Future's monitoring, reporting, and verification platform solves carbon credit uncertainty for buyers like Microsoft and Swiss Re, while Carbon Future's support helps scale the world's most promising carbon removal ventures for real climate impact. You can learn more at carbonfuture.org.